Hey everybody, thank you for listening to the Small Town Podcast. Connor here. If you find this episode valuable, be sure to share it with your friends and leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening. Also, I invite you to check us out on Patreon if you're interested in helping to support this podcast. You can find a link to that in the description of this episode. All right, enjoy the conversation. And I I kept not feeling right about it. Um, I did try the realistic approach, and I just kept thinking, this isn't what I see. Or I think it would be interesting to have, like, a panel of artists and then asking certain questions and seeing how they all answer differently. And then let them kind of talk amongst themselves. Okay. That would be cool. That's a good idea. (laughs) Who should we have? Benson, Paige Ward. Whoa. Oh, I don't know. Dr. Holla. They might fight. <laughs> I'm just, well, I was going to say Thanks I'm kidding, but I don't know. Um, that's true. It would be dramatic. But Did if, you listen to the episode I had with Benson? Yes. Okay. I thought it went well. Okay. You said you didn't know. He's a hard went. person to read, and that was the first time I'd ever had a conversation with him. Ever. Yeah. So... He seemed a lot more relaxed yeah. in your episode okay. than like in class. Okay. So I think that's a good See, thing. See, that's funny because I, uh, I just didn't have any point of reference. So yeah. like when it was over, I wasn't sure. But then he emailed me afterwards and he was like, I oh. thought it was great. I had a great time. Okay. And I was like, Phew, okay. Yeah. I think probably his favorite thing ever is when people ask him to talk about art. So. Well, my concern was that because I'm not an artist, I'm kind of oh. like an imposter in the art space. I thought that it might feel kind of weird for him having to like come down to my level, if that makes sense. Like I'm not saying that I'm not saying that he seemed arrogant in any way. I'm right. just saying that it was I was hoping that he thought it was worth his time, if right. that makes sense. Right. So Okay. I think he did though. Yeah. He's a teacher. Yeah. Because he gets all of us right out of high school and none of us know anything. And we think we're artists, you know, we're uh-huh. all like, oh, well, I did this in high school. And he's like, no, <laughs> that doesn't count. And he shatters all your thoughts of what you believed was art. And yeah, because yeah. a lot of people come in wanting to just draw a perfect picture. Like, oh, I've completely rendered a human face. Now I'm an artist. And he comes in and he's like, is that the highest goal that you want to get to or is there more to art and then he starts involving your faith and I never really thought about well I thought about my faith you know influencing my art but I never thought about praying you know like what colors to use or um, what to paint or what to paint on what do you mean with with prayer that I that I ask God to help me paint. Oh, okay. And, oh, okay, okay. And usually I, I'll pray before the studio. And one of my favorite quotes um, that Matisse said is he said in his, in his studio, he always wants to be approaching prayer. Okay. Or like he wants his heart to always be that moment right before you start praying. Mm-hmm. And just as you're working, you keep approaching that point where you're like, I need help, I need help, I need help. And then you just ask God to 
guide your hands. And and I've talked to Mr. Burke about it too, like yeah. surrendering your imagination to Christ. And then once you do that, you know, daily, your hope is that whatever you make will somehow be glorifying to God. I want to have him back on, Burke. He's so good. He was one of the first ones that Macron yeah. and I had on, and it was, it was hilarious. We were, <laughs> we were almost rolling on the floor laughing, almost. Um, I, he, his stories are incredible. The amount of life experience. Was he the one that, like, he, like, jumped out the window or something? Yeah. And then that was a crazy one. I yeah, do remember so, you guys laughing about, and he was like talking about his heart attack or something. He was just was laughing hilarious. right along. It was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so the way the way we structured that is we just asked him, because I knew that he had had multiple near-death experiences. So that was the structure for the episode was like, can you just tell all of your near-death experience stories? And he just started telling stories. And it was it was great. It's one of my favorite ones that we've done. So. That's crazy. I don't think I've had one. I don't think I've had a near-death experience. Have you? Yeah. Um, at least it felt like it at the time. Wow. Um, I was mountain climbing, and I realized halfway through that I almost died just because the rocks were so brittle and stuff. And just realizing that if I had fallen, that probably would have been it. But Wow. Um, I mean, I didn't start to fall, but I had the sensation that I was close to death, if Ooh. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Nothing? That's scary. I'm surprised that you haven't had one because you've had a lot of life experience. I mean, I'm trying to, I feel like I would know. Yeah. But I've never felt like I was dying. Pretty sure. That <laughs> sensation of being close to death? Yeah. Okay. I've had family members and like been there. And I remember seeing the first time a dead body, and that was really scary. Oh, okay. Um, and he was a stranger. My sister and I were on the beach, and he had drowned. And we found his body. Well, actually, wow. my sister did, and she was like seven. How old were you? I guess I would have been maybe 13 or 14. And that was really scary. She was a lot more scared because she found him and I was just sitting on the beach and then she came running to me and like we ended up finding his family and they were just on the beach and they had come from a really remote village. So he had just died. Yeah. They were in a really remote village and they were like, well, none of us know how to swim, but we just thought it would be fine. And anyways, they took us away. We were at a camp, and they took us away, and they sent the lifeguard, and they figured some things out, but... Oh, my gosh. Like, death is so... It, you can't wrap your head around it, but all of us go through it. Was this stateside, or was this... Mm -mm. It was okay. in Turkey. This was in Turkey. Okay. Yeah. And... But it's also so... Like, every artist, I feel like, talks about death because it's so universal. Mm -hmm. It's like love and death. There's one other thing that I've, I've, thought, I've thought of, like, three things that okay. just everyone goes through. Okay. Um, maybe birth. Birth, love, and death. And they all bridge that, like, 
there are physical responses and physical elements to it. But then there's also something spiritual that none of us can explain. And I think that's why it's such a good topic for art is like that's what artists are trying to do. Yeah. And they're trying to bridge like they're physically making something. But sometimes what they're making is you can't see it or it's from another. There's another reality influencing it, not just the physical reality. And words aren't enough. Right. I mean, yeah, because you have words like love and then we need a definition and no one can give one. Yeah. Or even yeah. the word like poetry. I mean, we have the word for it, but yeah, what's a what's poetry? And people will ask, what's art? And I know when Mr. Vincent was on your podcast, he just said it's a word. Yeah. <laughs> and he tells us that, too, because he doesn't think it's worth trying to define it because then why would we be making art if we could define it with words not as a noun but and again i'm saying this as an imposter as as a non-artist but i see it more as a process right more as a verb yeah like the making of something yeah more like a way of life yeah um like the art of fill in the blank but Hmm. that's more than just that's more than just making something beautiful, right? That's, that's a... Yeah. That's a... There's this beautiful book titled My Name is Asher Lev. Okay. By Chaim Potok. And he's a Jewish author. And his story revolves around, I think Asher is five or six when the book starts. Um, and he loves drawing. He can never put down a pencil and he's like drawing over his textbooks and everything he's just filling and in his parents mind he can't you can't draw um you can't draw faces and people um you can just draw landscapes and and like safer things um and his mom always tells him draw me something pretty draw me something pretty Um, But Asher's had a really tough life and like to process, he needs to be making other, other works of art, but his mom keeps asking for something pretty. Hmm. And so it like follows his journey into a teenager and then into his twenties and how the constant pressure of needing to make something beautiful affects him. Because it's not that he hates beauty. It's just that that's not enough for him. Mm. He's like, there is beauty, but there's also all these other things. And if we ignore them, we're not getting a full picture of life. Um, Because a lot of life isn't, you know, something that we want to look at. (laughs) We want to look away. And a lot of modern art maybe has gone to the extreme of wanting to look at the bad things. Okay. Um, so there's probably a balance somewhere that I'm also trying to figure out because there is a place for beauty and something to be enjoyed. Um, but then there's also a place for, you know, really harsh realities. Mm-hmm. Like, have you read Flannery O'Connor? Just, uh, just a little bit. Because her stories are like that. And she was a devout Catholic. But, I mean, she wrote really dark yeah. literature 
just about the realities of life and not wanting to shy away from that. So I'm just wondering what that balance is, you know? Well, all the good stories have dark elements to it. And we're not watching these stories to escape from dark stuff. Hmm. Because if we were, then all the great stories would just be happy all the time. But they're not. I mean, did you see Avengers Endgame? No. That's... <laughs> the The color scheme is really interesting. Oh. Like, just to just to look at the, the color panel of it. Um, you know, just to kind of play it and fast forward and to see. It's, huh. it's kind of a... Color, color-wise, it's a pretty dark movie. Um, Interesting. Yeah. No, I haven't gotten into those. I feel like I need to. At this point, it's kind of a commitment. There are so many of them. I know. Like, Angela said you got her into them, though. Yeah, so I've been interested in them, though, for, I think, a different reason than some people have. I, I see them as modern mythology, and I've been trying to understand mythology. Oh. And I think that that's probably the closest thing in, in the contemporary world right. to mythology. Um, I mean, yeah, you've got Thor. There, are, I mean, there's mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. Norse mythology in it, but more than that, just the way the stories work. So that's been my interest is trying to understand, huh. yeah, what we care about as a culture. Um, I mean, you know, I've been interested in trying to figure out what are the things that we care the most about, right? Sort of the questions that we've been asking, and uh, I trying to figure out what our what our myths are has been helpful for me in trying to piece that together. Do you have a myth that's like nailed down as in this is in our culture? Well, there's characters. That you figured out? There's characters. Oh, that like symbolize yeah. different beliefs right. or values. So you can see the, the way that we care about technology through oh. these stories. So in the 70s, hmm. the mythological story that broke into the scene and captured everybody's imagination was Star Wars. And it was this person who was being held together by technology, but it was bad. He was the bad guy. And now wow. that has sh- shifted over to Iron Man, who is essentially the same character as Darth wow. Vader, but he's positive. So technology is now a positive thing. Yeah. And it's keeping <sighs> Iron Man alive, but that's a good thing. It's good that he's less human. Right. And that he has more time because we value mm-hmm. time so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Endgame ends up being live. a lot about time. So I don't know if you've... Yeah. Okay. You said you haven't seen Endgame so, yet. No. So yeah. I'll, I'll watch it. Time ends up being a huge... Like, buying more time is essentially what the movie's about. So... Wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is why I like superhero movies. Okay. Yeah. Because you're all into the symbolism yeah. of them. And yeah. how we see ourselves. So the Captain America Civil War movie I thought was completely brilliant. Um, I loved that movie. That's my favorite one by far. Okay. Um, and the whole thing is a question of which one are we? Are we Captain America or Iron Man? Yeah. Uh, just as a culture, Western culture. And we're kind of split between these two. And, so uh, for you, do you think art, you know, if film is a form of art, which I think it is, then you want it to make you think. Is that what you're yes. looking for with, yeah. Because some people want want to read or, 
you know, look at a painting or um, watch a movie and just completely zone out because that feels really good mm-hmm. to us sometimes. Like, you know, I can watch The Office and not think about any hard life questions, but you want to. I think I have some of that, too. Yeah. Like, I, I really like Parks and Rec. I don't know if you've seen that show. I it's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> and that's my zone out show. Like yeah. if I, you know, during my dinner break from yeah. work, you know, if I've had a, you know, hard first half of the shift, I'll come home and I'll watch some Parks and Rec for a little right. while. And it's great. It's great for that. Right. Um, and then Mission Impossible is a great kind of uh, yeah, space out thing. Yeah. Because there's, there's no depth to it. It's just a fun <laughs> action movie. It's just Tom Cruise running and jumping out of airplanes. Oh my goodness. I think that's why it's so hard to define art. Yeah. Because it fulfills so many different needs that we have. Yeah. Like sometimes we need to rest and we need to have everything handed to us mm-hmm. and not connect any dots. Um, but then other times we need a challenge and we need to be confronted with really hard realities, even if we don't want to be. And because I've been trying to come up with as many categories of art that I encounter on a daily basis, you know, like there's functional um, art, like pottery um, that we have in our house and even different clothes, you know, if someone made the clothes or um, dyed the clothes or whatnot, I think those can be functional forms of art and that enrich our experience. And then there's totally, I mean, people would say it's non-functional if it hangs on your wall or sits on a pedestal, but I think they are functioning just in a different way. Yeah. You know, we don't use them to benefit ourselves in a physical way, um, the same way like a glass of water would, but they are benefiting us and they're, they're giving us a function that we need, but maybe won't address physically. And the physical needs are always easier to address. You know, if your Mm -hmm. stomach is growling, you know, you're hungry, Um, But a lot of our really deep spiritual needs, like, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to have to confront that. And because then you realize that you need God. But we're also strangely attracted to it. Right. It comes out in unexpected ways. Hmm. Like Like, what? Like Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. Every single character in Pirates of the Caribbean is well-written and has something they want and so the whole question is who's going to get what they want. And so it satisfies something. Um, and we like complex characters. Yes. Not that are, yes. you know, labeled good and bad. Right. right. But that are really complicated and right. like, oh, I feel sorry for him, but he's doing the wrong yeah. thing. And right. Like that was with the Joker movie. Um, I haven't seen it, but Mason did. And he said, you felt bad for him. And he's like, how can I feel bad for the Joker? Mm-hmm. But it, it's like we're so drawn to something that's not like very clear cut because that's how we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't I don't feel 100 percent good or bad. It's just. Yeah, it's always different and there's always nuance. And and then I think we like seeing that happen to someone else and then how they respond to it, hmm. you know. Well, this is actually a good segue into your art. Because okay. <laughs> I get the sense, and I do not mean this in a negative way at all. This okay. is just uh, this is just observing right. from the outside. I get the sense that a lot of the stuff you make has the feeling of 
incomplete. Mm. And I'm not sure if that's the kind of uh, brush strokes that you use or if it's just the general style. Right. But it kind of has that feeling like it's unfinished. Okay. And I wanted to ask you, is that on purpose or? No one has used that word with me before. Um, I've heard naive, which I could see some similarities. Okay. Um, and again, that I don't mean that a negative at all. No. And I don't take naive as a negative either. Um, but I really... When I'm making, I really want to tap into how can I how can I make something that that will appeal to that sense of maybe discomfort. Um, okay. But then, but then also addressing our need for beauty. Yeah. And it may mean that I have a really particular audience um, because I know that maybe that's not, you know, not everyone wants to feel uncomfortable. Um, but that's that's just true with a lot of artists who make something that they want to address hard things. And I think a lot of the incomplete nature comes from um, also, my work bridging the gap between the physical and the spiritual, and mm. that work is not complete, really ever. Um, as long as we're here on Earth, that we will always be just barely there. Um, and if you think of the Christian life, we're saved, and when God looks at us, He sees Christ, but we're not perfect. And we're not in heaven. Um, and so there is a lot of like incomplete nature in the Christian faith. Um, but now I'm thinking more about that word. I'm not sure if that's what you were asking when you asked incomplete. Because I've never had that word before. Well, there's, there's some kind of movement to it. It's not static. Okay. Maybe that's maybe that's what I'm saying. It's there's not there's not much stillness to it. It feels like mm. there's a direction, like there's somewhere for this to go. And I don't mean right. somewhere for you to go as an artist. I mean there's somewhere for this art to take me that right. I see that I don't necessarily see in like in some of the more I don't know, shall we say American styles? <sighs> I I don't know. Okay. Um I mean, let's use the example of um that line of field paintings in the hallway that I was telling you about that I saw. Um, You've got all of these different paintings that I guess are based off, are they based off a photograph? Right, of a a field and a sky. and kind of dark stormy clouds overhead, Mm -hmm. um, mostly blue and yellow coloring, that sort of thing. And then yours on the end, (laughs) you've abstracted out these shapes that are there in the other paintings, but they're not brought to the to the to the front. Right. And so you bring the stuff to the front and you're you're making me as an audience member look deeper. Right. Um it's just kind of a profound effect right. that I didn't necessarily see coming. Because I think good art should involve some audience participation or yeah. effort. Yeah. Um 
Well, we should probably put a plug in for either your Instagram page or something oh. because because this is audio <laughs> and we're talking about something visual. So right. for anyone playing along at home, uh, there will be a link in the description of this episode. Uh, check out what we're talking about. Right. And so you actually get a sense of the, the kind of shapes <laughs> that we have in our heads while we're talking. So anyway, right. carry on. Because for this class, we were given an assignment to paint a landscape. And so it was a picture of a field and a sky. Um, and so most people took the direction of, I'm going to paint this as realistic as I can. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad approach at all. And it's good to learn the foundational skills. And it can really build a lot of confidence in students too. Like, oh, I can, I can do this if I want to. Um, but then sometimes they'll end up abstracting or whatnot later. Um, for, uh, that painting was interesting because I did so many layers and I would, I kept not feeling right about it. Mm. Um, I did try the realistic approach and I just kept thinking, this isn't what I see. I mean, it's what's there, but, you know, if you think of Van Gogh's Starry Night, that's not what a sky looks like. But when you when you see that painting, it's almost like the feeling of the sky came before what he saw. And I'm such a deep feeler. You know, the mm -hmm. personality types where you can the be Myers a feeler. Yeah. yeah. I'm like F all the way okay. for feeler. Um, and I think... Just when I look at things like that, the feeling is almost more present than what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And and then also what what confuses me and what I'm still forming my thoughts around is photography. I mean, the invention of the camera really changed a lot of the direction of art. And so now I can take a picture. And so what is the role of painting. Um, and again, I don't think it's wrong to paint realistic and it shows a lot of skill. I don't think people know how hard, um, you know, mixing a flesh tone is or whatnot. And Reagan could probably talk more about that. But now that I can take a picture of it and now that photography is also so accessible, I mean, everyone can take out their phone and take a picture of that field. And so I think as a painter, I've been thinking about what can I give people that they can't get that's not in their pocket, just, you know, always at 100 mm percent, -hmm. like battery fully charged, ready to go. Um, this is something that they can't they don't have access to um, because a lot of the realism painters, you know, they were painting scenes that would hang in people's homes because they couldn't take a picture of it. It was giving them that joy and the beauty of it because they didn't have it. Or portraits of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like at your wedding, if you couldn't have a picture, someone could paint a portrait. And they're not going to abstract that because they wanted to remember the beauty of how real it felt. And so I think there's definitely a place for that. Um, and I'm, I'm still forming my thoughts on photography and 
and how it's changed. Um, I don't think negative or positive. Mm -hmm. It just has changed. You know, like our role in technology now we see is very positive. As you were saying in the movies, Mm -hmm. you know, technology is always like the hero and and the good thing. And so I don't think cameras are bad. (laughs) It's just changed a lot of the role of the artist. Wow, there's so much there. <laughs> That's great. I I grew up not really understanding that style of art. Mm. So it's it was it was helpful to see your painting of the field compared with other styles, you know, cuz each one was different. Mm-hmm. And it was I think I I had kind of a light bulb moment looking at it realizing okay, this is what's going on. It's not just about okay. the visual, as you say. Right. Now, you use the word feeling, and then you also said something about the spiritual world. Mm. Um, my, my wife lives with one foot in the physical world <laughs> and one foot way out there. Yeah. And some people are just that way. Yeah. And our culture doesn't really know what to do with those people. Right. Um, and sometimes it's, it's the people who grew up in a different culture who understand mm. themselves a little bit better and see that, yeah, that they... I don't know why that is. Yeah, I don't know either. I, right. I don't know either. I, I, I jokingly call it the MK curse. Right. Um, because it's a common <laughs> it's pattern a that I see. It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure it feels like a curse at times. Right. Um, the amount of life experience that y'all have mm. is is usually on, in, in the course of human history, it's only ever found in, in old age. Yeah. So you yeah. guys are old people trapped in young bodies. <laughs> um, I mean, pilgrimages were... That was something you didn't do until you had the money right. and the resources. Right. I mean, Abraham didn't go on his journey until he was, what, 70, 80? Right. Um, and so there's something powerful that happens hmm. to somebody who grows up in, in, with that kind of life experience, you know, seemingly yeah. from day one. Right. I mean, I would put military family kids in this yeah, in this group also. Definitely. My experience was way different. I mean, I grew up here in Jackson. Right. And so it's it's helpful for me to have someone so close to me who who uh lives uh with this with this beautiful tension in her life trying mm. to balance um yeah. you know what she can see and what other people seem to not experience but she definitely does. Right. Um And I was also going to add with the growing up overseas because myself and Connor's wife grew up in different countries, um, always feeling like somewhat of an outsider Hmm. and really wrestling with the word home. And I'm sure you've heard like just the question, you know, where are you from or where's your home can be really conflicting. Yeah, kind of a painful s- question. Right, to someone who's grown up overseas, yet I'm still from America. You yeah. know, my parents are American. And so I think for me, I constantly thought about heaven. Hmm. I love thinking about heaven. And I think we have this idea that it's going to be this boring place and that 
we're not even going to know what to do with ourselves because we'll just be, I don't know. I don't know what people think, but I just don't hear people getting excited about it. Yeah. Um, and I remember hearing people say, and I've been guilty of it, like, oh, I just hope I get to be married first. Or I just hope I get to have a kid mm-hmm. before I go to heaven or before Jesus comes back. And I don't know what to do with that because I've definitely been guilty of thinking that way. Um, you know, I do want to have a family and I want to experience that because I know it's rich and I know those are good things. But I'm also like, how dare I think that that would be better than eternity? Um, and last week <laughs> I started crying because I just couldn't wait to be in heaven. Mm. And like my husband didn't know what to do. He was like, I've never been with someone that's cried about this before. And, but like that longing of just not, you know, and then it goes back to that incomplete nature. Like this world is so incomplete. And I think traveling so much and growing up somewhere else, I always felt incomplete in in a good way, though, that really humbled me and made me realize um, I'm not all there is. And, yeah. and this isn't all there is. Yeah. Um, that's a really hard way to live when this is all. This is all. I mean, I would be much sadder than, than I am if, if this was all it. Yeah. You know? Well, I've been, I've been challenging myself lately to change how I think about this, you know, because I'm, because I, I live life with someone who, who dwells on heaven way more than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm so used to thinking about the, the material world as the most real and, right. and the other stuff, the spiritual stuff is just kind of icing on the cake, if you will. But, but that's just, that's not what our stories say is true. Mm. And that's not, that's not what all of us feel is true. And so I've been challenging myself to, to kind of rewire my brain in that area. And so I'm thinking like, okay, well, what's the most real thing I can think of? And is it physical? Wow. Uh, Numbers are numbers real. Wow. Yeah, they're real. (laughs) They're abstracted. They're not like the number one. Huh. is real, right? Yes, it is real. Is the number one but, physical? Wow, I, I've never thought not, of that. Not really. But it's, it's the same with letters. Right. Yeah. I mean, because we write letters and numbers on paper, which in some way is making them real, but they existed before we wrote them, I would think. Well, the Bible insists that <sighs> all of the physical world came from spoken word. Wow. And so that would mean that spo- there's there's a, they had to speak it first. There's a substance to the spoken word right. that uh, <sighs> exists long before the physical world. Yeah. So there's, I mean, this is a challenge for people like myself who, who are kind of caught up in the way our culture right. views reality. And we're in such an immediate culture too. Yeah. Whatever we want. Um, can be given to us so quickly, um, at least, you know, where I am in university and in most of my circles, um, 
whatever, and even myself, um, if I needed, I'm trying to think of something, um, even a hairbrush, I mean, used to, that would be a bone mm-hmm. that you had to carve, um, and and that would become a comb, or you would have bristles. And so people were very in tune with their needs taking time to provide, um, I guess, a physical response for that need. Yeah. I guess if the need is, I need um, straight hair that's not tangled, then there was a physical response. Um, But now the physical response is, I'm going to get some dollar bills out of my wallet and go to Dollar Tree and get a brush that I have no idea where it came from. Oh, it's even worse than that. I'm going to use a plastic (laughs) card. It's not even money anymore. Yeah, that's true. I guess most people would pay with a card. Yeah. It's not even, it's not even a physical trade anymore. It's so abstract. Yeah. But immediate. Yeah. And, and just even little things that we might not even think about, you know, it's like, I need a brush. I'm going to go get one. Like that didn't require a lot of thinking um, or resourcefulness, you know, as long as you keep track of where your card is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think like our minds have changed a lot because we can get things so immediately. Mm -hmm. And then just the whole attitude around art and literature and music, I think, is affected by that more than we probably think. Mm because we may not have to engage with it every day. Um, maybe we do as, you know, I know you write music and then as an art student, we engage with it more. So maybe we're, you know, we have to think about it. Um, yeah, music is weird because it's, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was finished. Okay. Uh, music is weird because it it doesn't feel very physical. Hmm. It's, well, I mean, it it's it's mostly... It does use physical objects. I mean, you use physical objects to, to play the music. Mm-hmm. But where the music really comes alive is is with the time dimension. Mm-hmm. You know, music is four-dimensional. And waves? Yeah. Or is that not what you were thinking? Well, I mean, gu- guitar strings, vibrations, and... Because and mm-hmm. those are real and physical yes. in one sense, but you cannot see them. Have you seen... I think I showed Mason this, the cymoscope. Yes. You've seen this? Yes. It's a, it's a <laughs> water film. Um, and then they play the sound from underneath, uh, vibrating through the center of the water film going outwards. And it makes this beautiful, yeah, geometric shape wow. through the ripples. And even still, you're only seeing the response of another element. You're not really mm-hmm. seeing, I guess, the waves themselves. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure how it all works, and Mason would probably know better. Um, so, I'm thinking about music. Why do you? And maybe we've talked about this a little bit, but like, what do you think is being? You know, why do we love music so much, and what is our, what is our need for that, and like, what is music? fulfilling because I mean I don't know anyone that doesn't like some kind of music yeah no that's true it's it's universal every culture has it I love Um, that and and it's even cooler than that it's not just every culture even babies respond to it so I didn't expect this but my son 
he doesn't respond to paintings. He doesn't know what sculptures are, but he knows how to sing. And he doesn't even have teeth yet. And he's already singing. (laughs) And like that, that blew my mind. Um, And he makes a sound that he doesn't make any other time except when music is playing. Really? It's a, it's a unique, it's like a, ah, type of thing. (laughs) And it's only one, like he can't change pitch or anything like that. But, uh, but it's unique to when music's playing. Um, so I don't know, maybe you'll hear it sometimes at church. Right. In the, during the service I'm sure having a kid totally, I don't, do you feel like it's really changed your view of what you do? With music? In music, right. Well, it's, it's confirmed something I suspected, which is that okay. music is, okay, I'm going to, if Benson <laughs> hears this, he's going to get mad. Um, so I asked, I asked Lee Benson um, if he thinks there's a hierarchy of art forms. And he said he thinks there's a hierarchy of dimensions. We did talk about this. And by that logic, that would me- that would music. make music the highest because music music comes alive on dimension four. Right. Um, so because it requires time, mm. something that a lot of other art forms don't seem to, uh, they're present because we can't get out of time. I right, mean, we can't right. escape it. Um, but it exists on that mm. that that next level. And so I have, I've suspected for a while that music was the, let's not say highest, let's say primary Mm. art form, maybe Mm. the first that humans discovered. Um, and, and my son's response to music seems to confirm that. Um, yeah. So, and that's not, that's not casting shade at any other kind of art. Oh no, I don't it's, feel that yeah, way. Yeah, it's just it's just an observation that there's something primal about music that right. we, it seems to be core to who we are. That's interesting because I've thought a lot about um, primitive art mm-hmm. and what what um, oh what's the word what drove them as humans to take red dirt mm-hmm. and and mix it with different oils and waters and just this combination until they figured it out because I'm sure they didn't get it on the first try. Yeah. But they were like, we're going to get our hands red and mark the walls. And like, what is that just primal need? And then I'm sure they were, you know, like those, the first instruments that were made um, just out of like dried beans or sticks or whatever they could find. Um, in some ways, I wish I could have been there, like when that was being discovered, um, and try and understand, like, what was that? And what was going through everyone's mind? And was there a group of people thinking they're crazy? Mm-hmm. Or was everyone like on board with it, thinking, yeah, this is awesome? Um, and I've thought a lot about dance recently too, um, because in a lot of art therapy centers, dance is involved. It can be so healing and that's also maybe with music, but I'm not sure, um, because I know babies do start to dance pretty Mm -hmm. soon, um, but they also can't really have full control over all their muscles yet, but... I feel like dancing is also one of those very 
primal Mm -hmm. instincts. Like, why do we want to move when we hear music? And every culture has those dances um, and different rituals. Um, I love that word and that idea of rituals. Um, I'm a very structured person. Yeah. Which surprises a lot of people once they see my art. Because my art is very loose and intuitive. Um, But really in my everyday life, I have to have structure and routine. And I try to incorporate as many rituals as I can in my day. Um, My latest one I have is I draw three angels before I go to bed every night. Um, Just to... Really? That's really interesting. Right? (laughs) I don't know... I don't know how it how it came to me. All I'm, in the same notebook? No. Um, I save scra- little scrap papers throughout the day, um, different colors or, you know, just whatever I find, even cardboard. And I have a little stack of papers by my bed. And before I go to sleep, I'll draw three angels and I'll just refocus my thoughts onto something greater than myself. Mm. Um, and I really think, I mean, I have... God to thank, but also my dad. He prayed for us every single night. I don't remember, even when we would travel, like even when I was out of the house, he would call me and pray with me every night. And he used to end his prayers um, somewhat liturgically with, and may angels surround this room. And I heard that every night. I mean, from age probably from when I was in the womb, Mm -hmm. he'd been praying that for my brother who was older than me from then until I was 18 and left the house. And I think that amount of, um, not routine, but ritual of hearing that every single night really had an impact on me. Um, and I didn't even realize it at the time. And then I left and uh, and now I'm in school and just realizing like that was a powerful prayer to hear every night. And it was really important for me to realize that angels interacted with us. And, and so anyways, it's just one thing that I can insert into my day um, because I think that that was also a, something that was adopted, you know, since the beginning of time was ritual. And when most people were farmers, I mean, that's nothing but ritual and routine and having a system. Um, but then there's something so spiritual about that and how, how many um, analogies there are about farming in Scripture. It's very, I think it's a very spiritual thing to do. <laughs> to grow your own food. When I talked with um, Matthew Snowden from the Orthodox Church, Mm -hmm. we talked about liturgy in church, and um, we we talked about how for people who have had really bad church experiences Mm. and have been sort of burned by other people, um, oftentimes their reaction is to kind of shy away and if they still go to church, they'll go to one that's more stripped down and, uh, and expects less of them. Um, Casual. But yeah. Um, one where there are fewer people involved, you know, is less of a chance to get hurt again. Um, mm. But he, he had an interesting observation that 
what he's seen is that the the deeper liturgical experience is actually where people tend to find the healing. Wow. Um, and and we ended up using that word healing over and over again wow. during our conversation. And so um, I actually titled the, the first episode that I did with him, Liturgical Healing, because that was wow. kind of a theme in the conversation. And liturgy and ritual are basically the same thing. I mean, liturgy is just right. a Christianized version of the word. I mean, it just means, right. it just means ritual. Right. Um, so yeah. Liturgy has been very healing for me. Well, it's, I, I need to yeah. listen to that episode. Um, because I probably haven't, he's been around it much longer sure. to see those effects, Sure. but I just know for me personally and for my husband, it has been for sure. Well, I, so many times at church, I don't know what to pray. And so it's so nice to have it already written there. <laughs> like to start the service off, I mean, you know, if you if you if you open every service with a word of prayer, mm. at some point, if I'm trying to come up with those prayers on my own, mm. at some point, there ends up being kind of a, a fakeness to it, right? Like, yeah. And it's funny that when we do come up with our own prayers, I just thought of this, like at a dinner table or something. They often do end up being the same. Yeah. We often have a very yeah. routine yeah. prayer. Yeah. You know, there's one for mealtimes and there's one to start off Sunday right. school. And and even professors that pray before class mm-hmm. um, have a very similar prayer. Even and praying at specific times. Yes. Yeah. So it's very interesting that even when we do allow <laughs> for, you know, there's no script or something... A lot of times I'm praying the same thing mm-hmm. and at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it has to be less sincere. I mean, it can become that way um, because I think before I was introduced to the liturgical side of church um, and like the high church, I really didn't understand the significance of repetition or um, saying the same prayer every week. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm there, I think God has really opened it up. And then I think me being in the arts has really opened up the way I think about things. And, you know, having a, a practice where you work with your hands, and a lot of it is the same. You know, you get your brushes out, you set up your palette, you paint. And, it, you know, you can paint something different every time, but then you still wash your brushes the same. There's a lot of routine still in art and, and in everyday life, eating, sleeping, yeah. getting up. And I just think that is so beautiful <laughs> how there's a lot of repeated things that we just have to do as people. Do you wait for inspiration or do you have a discipline of working on art every day? Oh my goodness. I have a funny story about this. Okay. Okay. When I toured school, uh, when I toured Union, as a a senior in high school, I was used to art being um, pretty laid back in, I mean, no, I was challenged, but art was almost always relaxing for me um, in high school and almost always when I was inspired, whatever that means. 
Um, but when I felt like it, I would, I would make art. And if I didn't feel like it, I just wouldn't. And when I toured Union, I remember walking into the art department, and the first thing I see is this massive poster on the wall, and it is still there. And it's a quote by Chuck Close, who said, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up. And I was terrified. Like, I just remember being like, what am I getting into? I had no idea what that meant. I was like, I'm pretty sure I only work when I feel like it. Um, Because art was really a hobby for me. Yeah. Um, And it is for a lot of people. It's such a good hobby um, because it can be really relaxing. Um, But I would say that now I can't, I can't wait for inspiration. And I think that means something really different to me now um, than it did. Um, And especially if art is a career, Mm -hmm. like with any career, you might not feel like going to work one day. um, And then sometimes you get there and, you know, you're like, oh, I'm so glad I came. Other times you get there and you realize, I really didn't get a lot done, but I still needed to be disciplined and come in today and try something. And I know uh, Madeline Lingle, uh, one of my favorite authors, wrote, you know, she has to force herself to write every day. Even if she goes back the next day and realizes that was garbage, it was part of the process. Mm -hmm. And if you're an artist, you have to allow yourself to go in and not make something good and just be like, what did I do today? I feel like I didn't do anything, but you did because in the next day when you go in, you'll be, you'll be working on something else that the previous day might've influenced, even if it was a mistake, it will influence your next work. Um, but then I'm not, I don't want to advocate for working all the time either because that's really easy for me to do. Um, I can get really caught up in work and neglect other important things. And then that leads to burnout. Hmm. Um, and I think that's something a lot of creative people experience. I mean, I'm not sure, um, because I'm still a student, so I'm not sure what it's like outside, But I know a lot of people that have graduated um, encourage people in a creative field to have another job where they have a lot of structure and routine and have another income. Because when you base your whole income off of your artwork, um, it can be a lot of pressure to just make what people want and you don't want to push away your creativity or those urges that you're like I don't know if this will work and then if you have this this huge pressure like oh I have to provide for you know me and my family and all these other things it's more likely that you're going to pay attention to what sells and a lot of creative urges go against that (laughs) um I know I kind of went on a trail there that's a great answer okay that was okay yeah so we're coming back to the balance between, uh, well, how did you say it? You, you you phrased it really well. It was have a structured time where you work mm-hmm. and then also make sure to have time that you don't. Yeah. And that's, that's helpful. Yeah. Because some people feel like they have to be on all the time. Mm. Like if I'm an artist, 
that's my primary identity. And you're saying, no, not so much. Right. Like there has to be a part of you that can step away. Yeah. I'm sure people would disagree with me on that. And uh, I'm sure that some people's primary identification would be um, artists. And I suppose if I had like a career title, it would be artist. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, I think we're all humans, (laughs) first and foremost, and we need we need a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and we especially need rest. And that's become more clear to me. Um, interestingly, after marriage, I don't know like what your relationship was with work and rest, but I could easily just um, plow through a million things and only think about myself um, because I didn't really need to think about anyone else. And I could stay in the studio until whatever time, Um, and in some ways the hermit life really appeals to me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I get that. I like solitude a lot. Um, I feel the same way. Right. And then even like, even when Mason and I just started getting more serious in dating, um, I had to take a step back and realize art is a really good thing. And work is also good. You know, God created us to work and he wants us to. Um, but so are relationships Mm -hmm. and so is rest. And, and I was craving relationships, but I didn't realize that's what I needed. I just thought, oh, I need to work more. I need to make more art to fill whatever that emptiness is. Um, but really that emptiness was, I need relationships, but I also think art and music are a great way to bring in relationships once you figure out how to do that, you know? I actually have a story with that. Okay. If you're interested. Um, yes. So I had kind of a burnout experience with music mm-hmm. a few years ago and um, I just kind of got bored with it. Right. And, and I, and I knew what it was. I mean, I, I, there, there wasn't a whole lot of soul searching involved. I knew it was because I was writing introspective songs that were about me. Wow. And, I, I was bored with that. I just didn't care. Um, it wasn't compelling. And, um, and so I wrote one more introspective song about how I was done writing introspective songs. <laughs> and then I decided that for the foreseeable future, I was only going to write music for other people. And I was only going to write church wow. music specifically. And so that was when I decided to start putting the Psalms to music. Um, and so I've been working, doing a Psalm every week. Um, and that has been sort of the, the target for my, my energy has been focused in that direction. And I feel, ironically, I feel more like a musician now than I've ever felt. Wow. But it's way more ritualized, like you're talking Mm. about. There's a discipline of every week put a psalm to music, share it with the community, yeah. and then rinse and repeat. So then do you do you feel inspired every week? Going back to that question, like do you do you ever not want to put a psalm to music yeah, for whatever yeah. reason? So there are times I think I think I'm still 
I think I'm still learning to read this about myself. There are times when I'll sit down and I can kind of know it's not going to come out right now. Yeah. And so I'll just put it aside. Yeah. And then I'll come back the next day and mm. out it comes. Um, and, uh, and so I think there's a little bit of, of what would you say, kind of knowing yourself yeah. and being able to tell when it's coming and when it's not. Um, <laughs> But there's also, you have to sit down. Right. And there has to be the discipline of sitting down in order to tell whether right. it's going to come or not. So it's, it's kind of a balance of both, yeah. if that makes sense. And with knowing that point for yourself, I remember learning how to throw on the pottery wheel. Mm-hmm. And uh, our instructor saying that on average, you know, you would need five to six hours a day oh, wow. to, for a whole semester yeah. to really nail down throwing. People make it look really easy, but it's not. Um, But then within those hours, you just get so frustrated and you just want to fling the clay off or do whatever. And he would say, you know, go to the wheel, start working, but there's going to be a point where you get angry and you have to leave. Otherwise, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to frustrate yourself more, you know, leave and do something that's good for you. Um, like go on a walk or, you know, have a cookie or whatever it is and, and then go back to work. And so you have to know where that point is for yourself. Um, but then do you think people could tell if they had a cup and it had been made in a fit of anger? Ooh, that would be an interesting test. I don't know. It'd be a really complicated experiment to run. Um, Ooh, now I'm thinking, what if I own a cup that was made? <laughs> and you don't like it, but you don't know so why. Angry. You're like, this is a well-made cup, but I just don't like it. Angela would say yes. Angela would say you could definitely tell. Wow. Maybe she has a better radar for that kind of thing. But I don't know. I guess I am a little more familiar with painting. And I think I would be able to tell if a painting was made when someone was just, like, not having it Hmm. and was angry. Um, And then another thing I was going to say is, like, with failure and messing up and not being able to make something you like. I did have um, another instructor who's very dear to me um, tell me that for her... That is when sometimes she does the best work after the fact, after she's made a mistake. Okay. She'll come back. And because, like, let's say you've just butchered a painting Mm -hmm. and you're like, this is past the point of what I even know what to do with. Then you're going to try something new that you haven't done before. And so she said some of her most successful paintings have come from a place of, I have no idea what to do. I can't mess this up anymore. So I'm just going to try something completely different that, that I haven't tried before. And then it can open up new pathways. Mm. So I think there's lots of different ways to respond to failure or like not getting something right. And it may just depend on the person and then, you know, the timing of it. Because sometimes you need to walk away. Sometimes you need to push through. 
Well, to circle back to what we talked about before, you said that with your field painting, you had multiple layers. Right. Right. So you painted it one way and then painted over and again. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe you feel this way where there was one layer, maybe it was the second to last, where I was like, I could turn this in. And like, I could be maybe 70% satisfied. And so there was this temptation, like, I should just, I should just stop. <laughs> and I've done enough. There's all these other things I could be doing. Oh, I could start on my next painting. Oh, I could do this. And then there was this other side of me, like, no, you need to start another layer. And you know you won't be satisfied until you keep going. And so maybe there are projects that we can say, <laughs> like, I need, to, I need to give this up. And, but then I think there are other times where it's really beneficial to keep going and to know, like, I'm not satisfied with this. Um, even though this is decent, it's not what I want. This is why I hate recording music. Really? Is it's never good enough. Ooh. And it's, then it's frozen and it's done and you can't change it. Ha- so do you feel that way with live music? Too? No, I love playing live music. Huh. That is interesting. I have an existential crisis every time <gasps> I try to record music because it's never good enough. Oh, is it, no. Some people are really good at the recording side and right. then other people are really good at the, the, the more live side, the performance side. And I don't, it's more about enjoyment. It's uh, the recording part just isn't fun. Hmm. But with other mediums, recording is kind of an inevitable part of the process. Yeah. I don't know why these are connecting in my mind, but I'm thinking of like printing or um, like graphics how okay so we had a combined painting and graphic sale and some some of us that were in the painting class were painting you know hand painting each card mm-hmm. and then graphics again not better or worse this is a neutral difference sure. and i want to like be careful when i'm talking about these things Um, Because there's tension between different disciplines of art. Um, I want to talk about that with you, by the way, at some point. Okay. We should should get to that later. And, but then it seems like a totally different process for them um, where they can make a poster and then they can print a hundred, you know, Mm. for, for a limited amount of money, but then they physically made one. And so, like, with live music, it's going to be different every time. There's going to be little nuances that are going to be unique to each performance, and that's really exciting. So it's like, okay, I went to this concert. No one else is ever, like, ever going to experience what Mm -hmm. I just experienced Mm -hmm. live. But then with a recording, it can be distributed to millions of people, and they're all hearing the exact same thing. Yeah. And so I can see why graphics would be frustrating for myself. And maybe that's why recording is frustrating for you. It's like I'm dishing out 
a lot of the same thing. But then I think that's why other people like it so much, hmm. you know? Like, they have a concrete image of what they, you know, everyone knows what they're getting. Everyone knows yeah. the product. They can see it. Um, and whereas, you can get more of it. Right. Whereas yeah. if I put up a portrait painting and I say, um, you know, I'm taking commissions for other portraits, they don't necessarily know what it's going to look like. It's more of a risk, mm-hmm. maybe. Do you see that with ceramics also? Factory-made mugs? Mm. That sort of thing? Yes. Yes. Um, that That's a little bit, like, different because... In my mind, the handmade mug is almost always superior. Okay. Which is a really... I'm not sure if I want to say that or not. Let's ruffle some feathers. I just, I can't think of a scenario for myself where I would choose a factory-made mug over a ceramic mug. Whereas with painting and graphics, I would choose, you know, like I buy their posters and their cards and, and they design logos and like I see a lot of, so they're not the exact same, mm-hmm. but I see what you're saying with like the factory made mug is a mold and you get the same thing every time. What about um, sentimental value? See, that's the one thing I was hung up on is that's maybe the only situation I could see it being different. Um, because if, oh, there was this plate in our house. That, you know, I don't even know, probably from Walmart or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was the red plate. That's what we called it. Okay. So, you know, not a very creative name. It was red. And whoever's birthday it was um, got to eat off of the red plate. And then it kind of started branching out to, like, you know, if someone, um, I don't know, got a good grade or it was just, and to a kid's mind, like, those physical symbols are very important. Like, if I didn't get the red plate on my birthday, I would have thought, like, what is wrong? I must have just disappointed my family or something, you know, huge in my mind because the red plate was so central to our celebrations. Um, so something like that, you know, I don't think it was handmade, but it it carried so much meaning that, right, Mm-hmm. That it was it was that important to mm-hmm. me. Um, yeah, so so maybe a handmade mug would not always be superior. But I think if we had a neutral, like, here's a handmade mug and here's a store-bought yeah. mug. With I no can't, stories. Right. Attached. I can't think of any situation where I would choose a factory-made mug. After, especially after taking a ceramics class and seeing everything that goes into it, everything that goes into making clay. I mean, you're literally taking dirt that grows your food um, and that we're made out of, according to scripture, and you're making a vessel. Um, And then I have thought a lot about how the mug or the cup form 
is maybe one of the most intimate art objects we can interact with hmm. because we put it to our lips. Interesting. And so there's something very intimate and safe about a mug um, that we just, we want it to be worth like having that experience with. Yeah, and it, and it holds something that is literally keeping us alive. Right, yeah. and is nourishing yeah. you. And it's like these things that we can do mindlessly every day, like oh, I'm just going to fill up my water cup, um, but that I think should carry a lot of meaning in our everyday lives. And that's why now it's like I've we started a mug collection and – it's so exciting every day getting to wake up and being like, oh, I'm going to choose my mug for the day. And then I look at them. I'm like, oh, my studio mate so-and-so made this. And my, you know, this person I met over this in- internship or mm-hmm. all these different things. And you have these memories. And, and then you know someone's hands touched that. And then that fire touched it. And and then it had to go, you know, it had to be loaded into a kiln and then unloaded and like all these steps going into it, um, maybe it's that idea of process that we're attracted to um, and seeing the process firsthand in the studio. And now when I go to buy mugs, I'm like, wow. I can just think about their stories, Mm -hmm. and that's really fascinating. Can you tell if you look at a handmade mug how it was made? Usually. I don't know... There's probably techniques I don't know. Okay. Um, no, sometimes there definitely are. When I'm talking to Macklin, he'll he'll explain, like, okay, he put his thumb here while he did this and stuff yes, like that. Yes, yes. And that's really neat when you can get to that point. Because I think I'm starting to get that way in painting, too. Okay. Where I can look at old paintings or, I mean, I guess they don't have to be old, but let's say the person isn't even alive anymore. You can still look at it. And as you learn how brushes work and, like, different kinds of brushes and and different kinds of paints, you can look at it and think this is the way their wrist mm. exactly moved when they did that stroke. And that's, like, a really fun place to be in um, when you can start learning techniques without someone telling you. Mm. You can look at it and, and think, wow, I really like that technique. Now I can do it. Without. And that's not something you can learn from a textbook. You just right. have to experience yeah. and time and exposure, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Seeing enough brush strokes for yourself um, is important. I I just realized um, that I didn't answer your question earlier. Okay. Um, the ins- so this would kind of be backtracking, but you asked. Uh, why music is meaningful, mm. and I realized I didn't answer it. Um, and this this connects that question to um, the importance of ritual. Um, I think that the world is made up of, for lack of better words, order and chaos. Mm. And the reason why music is meaningful is it bridges those two Um, Hmm. to take something as empty as air and to turn it into a sensory experience. Um, And then to take 
otherwise meaningless notes and put them into patterns Mm -hmm. and actually put order to it um, is something that I think we find really compelling. And this is something that that you're doing in the ceramics world also Mm -hmm. is taking dirt and giving uh, shape and substance to it um, and literally bringing order out of chaos. Um, So I think this is probably why these kinds of arts are so powerful and compelling to people. Mm. Um, and I think this is also why I find your art compelling is because I think you're, I think you're dancing on the edge there between order and chaos in your art to take what would have been just a, an ordered picture of a field Mm. and to make it almost incoherent Mm. through shapes, um, to show the, the, the substance underneath to right. go one layer down. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think there's right. I think there's something there in what you're doing. Mm. There's a there's a process of discovery, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that's what I mean by incompleteness. Right, is you're you're on the edge there between order and chaos. But that I makes think sense. I think in a really compelling way. I know Madeline Lingle again. She when she writes about art, she talks about um, cosmos and chaos. Yeah, Matthew Snowden used that phrase or something also. Like, okay, maybe it didn't originate from her, or maybe he's read her and it did. I can't. Okay. Anyways, she didn't quote anyone else. Um, but yeah, she was saying like she can pretty much categorize art into is this contributing to more chaos, which some art or music will, and then or is this contributing to the cosmos? Did she see that as a negative? If it's contributing to chaos? She didn't necessarily say. Okay. Um, so I don't want to speak for her. Yeah. Um, because I think I know some really godly people that would say both of those. Like that... I think some people could say we need a taste of chaos. Oh, definitely. Right? And yeah. that like there can be literature or... Yeah. Art that is chaotic. Yeah, too much order is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's probably like an evil chaos that yeah. you don't want to tap into. Right. <laughs> um, well, what you said earlier was that you structure your life in such a way that you can experience healthy chaos in your art. Mm. Right? So the discipline, the order allows you to right. have fun with this more chaotic side. Hmm. But it's a, it's a question of balance. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of that. I feel like I'm learning lots. Well, we're, we're kind of putting words to each other's things here. This is why I love podcasts is because right. I'm, I'm able to talk with people who are in completely different domains. Like I love talking with visual artists. And huh. so it's been great to have Lee Benson on right. and to have you on and Macklin on because um, it's, it's outside of my realm of experience, but it's so good for me to talk with people like <laughs> you because, because we need to be reminded that there's more to the world. Mm. What was I going to say? I'm trying to think of how to form this thought. There's been a lot of studies about communities okay that are 
that are confined to, um, let's say, like worker housing, that because we were learning this in my class, when architecture started to change and become very similar and cookie cutter, okay, um, you're taking away individual visual choices. Um, you know, where some complexes are so strict that they'll say everyone has to have white curtains. Or, um, like, there was this one architect who the curtains only had three settings in every single room so that when you look down the window of this apartment, there was never, like, a curtain slightly off. It, he wanted so much order that actually there are studies that look at when you go into those communities, a lot of crime started to happen. Whoa. Which is insane. And maybe this should be a totally separate podcast with Dr. Halla because he knows so much more about the architecture than I do. Okay. But he was telling us that, you know, like, why are we drawn to old architecture? And, and everyone loves it. And, like, especially in Europe, you know, people go back and they're like, oh, the architecture is just so beautiful. But there's also so many of what the modern architects would say are unnecessary. You know, they put these like flowery columns and, and animals or sculptures that people would say like, those aren't functional. They're not contributing to the physical building. But then when you take those away, you realize that they were serving a function, hmm. but it, it, it just wasn't physical. But for people to be surrounded by that amount of beauty and detail and consideration for the visual, it really influenced their lives. And it gave them a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. You know, like churches were just decked out. If you go to those cathedrals, um, mostly in Europe, they, they spent so much time and resource on those um, that... I suppose now with church architecture, we're really losing um, the sense of this should be a place where I feel different than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I'm going to walk in and I'm just going to be overwhelmed with how holy this place feels. Because now I think we've gone to um, how can this feel like every other building? And we want that to be inviting um, so there's like two different sides of, of architecture, which I think really feeds into how the inside and then the visual arts are communicated within a church. Um, and I think that's why so many artists are attracted to the churches that are visually um, contributing, I guess, um, especially the Catholic churches that really contribute a lot of their resources to the visual side of things instead of dismissing them um, because they are so important. I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, architecture mm -hmm. because you told me one time that your art is inspired in large part by architecture. Yes. But it's not architecture <laughs> here. So you want to talk about fairy chimneys? Yes. Yes. Okay, should I describe them for someone that's never seen them? So this is another point where 
if you can, if you're not driving or something, uh, look up fairy chimneys on Google and uh, follow along while Abby explains. The, yes, you won't regret it, but you will want to go. Um, Fairy chimneys were, or are, people don't live in them anymore, but they're formed by a volcanic eruption, as far as we can tell. Um, I think believers would say that, you know, that God wanted this place to exist um, and formed it however that happened. But a lot of geologists can't figure out exactly how it happened. Um, But a lot of this soft rock was formed. Um, And these just really organic, um, almost like figure figure-like um, rocks came into being. Yeah. And what is fascinating is that when Christians were being persecuted in Turkey, which is where I grew up, that the rock was so soft that they could carve these tunnels into them and windows and shelves um, and began to live out of these rocks. Well, some of them were already carved, they were already hollowed out, right? Right. A lot of the ones underground, too, um, because some of them are now, right, under where, I don't know if they were always underground or if over time they've, you know, land has formed over them. Um, But especially the ones underground are hollow. Mm -hmm. Um, So something with the formation. Just erosion? Whether it was, yeah, layers or erosion and time. Um, well, this is really interesting because you think of erosion as something that takes a little bit off the top over time, but yeah. that's not what happened. No. It hollows it from the inside that's out. That's I'm wondering if there were layers. Okay. If there was a bottom layer and then something in the middle, you know, or the erosion happening and then another layer, I'm not... Because what's left is the sure. hard outer shell. Yeah. And the soft inside yeah. is yeah. pushed out by, by, I guess, wind so and water. the only place I've been to see these formations are Cappadocia, Turkey. But I've been finding out that there are some really similar um, formations, like perhaps Bryce Canyon in Utah. Okay. Um, There's another place in California that I can't remember the name, but they're just these really tall... They just look like people. And a lot of the... A lot of the stones are named, you know, something like Three Sisters, or um, in Cappadocia, there's the Two Dancers. Um, and, but anyways, as a, as a kid, we were going to this place um, multiple times a year, and we would lead tours. And in a kid's, I love the way that kids think, but as a kid, looking back, I think I never stopped associating Cappadocia as a safe place Hmm. because that's what it was to the Christians, um, you know, a thousand years ago. And as a kid, I was seeing, you know, I must have thought this was a safe place for Christians. I'm a Christian. It's a safe place. And my siblings and I would explore those caves for hours and hours and hours. Just it's just the ultimate dream world, especially for a kid. I'm so glad I got to experience it as a young, young child, um, because I think I saw things that 
almost I don't see anymore. And that few people right, get to see. Get to see. Um, and I know I'm quoting her so much, but Madeline Lingle, you just need to read her book, Walking on Water, because it's all about art and faith. She talks about how as a kid, she always remembers floating down the stairs at her grandma's house, that she never touched them, that she would just, you know, I don't know, drift over them and never touch. But every time she went up, she would touch them. Then she said, as a teenager, they were going to return to her grandma's house. And she was like, oh, I can't wait to float down the stairs. Well, when she was a teenager... And she walked up them the way she always did. And then when she came down, she didn't float anymore. That she touched every stair with her foot. And I know maybe some people will think this is crazy, but she was saying that she really thinks as a child she floated because that is what she experienced as a kid. Because there are just some things that perhaps children believe in that they get to experience them. You know, just like as long as Peter was having faith that he was walking on water, he was. And then as soon as he stopped, as soon as he doubted it, he just dropped. And so I wonder if there were things that as a kid I got to experience there that when I go back, it's still a wonderful place. I still love it, and I got the chance to go back, you know, a year or two ago. Um, and that's where Mason proposed, which was wonderful. Wow. Way to go, Mason. <laughs> yeah, I know. He knows me well. Good job. But I just wonder, you know, what was it in my kid's mind that now when I go to the paper or the canvas or clay, I mean, it's like whatever medium I'm given – I start drawing those forms. I And I still don't know exactly what it is. Um, the closest thing I've come to is I heard the phrase, wild as God. Um, I think a poet used it to describe a, I can't remember what animal's like personality, that this animal was as wild as God. And I thought, you know, that is the only place I've been to, perhaps, that is mm. as wild as God. Like, you just go there and you feel his presence. And, and maybe that's, maybe part of it is, like, those were safe havens for Christians. And on the insides, they've completely just decorated and painted. And that goes back to the, the primal instinct. Like, these people were trapped in caves, with nothing to do, and they resorted to painting. Hmm. And, I mean, they would have had to risk their lives leaving those structures just to dig up the dirt or different dyes. And I just wonder who those people were that were like, we're going to go out and risk this for the whole community to go get some paint instead of food, instead of water, and, and these other physical needs, you know, and, and maybe they were men, but maybe they were, sometimes I imagine, like, what if they were these, I don't know, women that just bonded together and thought, we need to, we need to decorate this space because this is our church. 
and it was so holy to them that they they wanted symbols and they wanted visual things to look at while they were in darkness and hiding. And um, I just think that's fascinating to go there. So thanks for bringing that up. Well, I've seen pictures of the place you're talking about, uh-huh. and the shapes on the walls look like the shapes that I see in your mm. artwork. Right. And they're weird shapes. They're kind of, I don't know, you stare at them for a little while, and you're like, what, what, is, what is this? <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if you have the same experience when you're painting it. Like, what is this? What am I painting? Oh, I always think that. I have several symbols right now. I wish I could show my sketchbook on the podcast. Um, But in my sketchbook, I have a page of symbols that are repeated in my work that I don't know where they come from. Um, There's a particular one that I sign every painting with that's a circle and three lines. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, I've seen that. Coming out of the top. And people have said it's an eye. Um, Most people say that. They say, oh, it looks like an eye. And I'm like, I don't think it is. Mm. But it is something, and maybe some things are just too wonderful to understand, but I just love that shape. <laughs> I don't know why. I just love making it, and I really, I really think that God works through my hand in some way, um, and I think he works through all of us, um, and for me, it just happens to be my hand, that, that I just have to have faith and say, you want me to make this shape, and I don't know why. And maybe one day I will. You know, I hear a lot of artists say at the beginning, like, they keep coming back to the same forms and the same things, and they have to figure out why. And that's part of the process of making work. Um, Is it this compelling, like, I have to figure out why I do this? Um, But then I think some people live their whole lives and never truly figure out why they were touched the Mm. way they were touched. Um, and some of the symbols that are on the walls in the caves and the, the forms are also in Turkish rugs. And I know what some of the symbols mean, but not all of them. Um, and so, but I just think as a kid, my mind was filled with so many shapes and I really soaked in all the rich, um, colors and forms, lines. I mean, everyone's house we went into had tapestries on the walls and rugs on the floor, and someone had made, you know, their own sweater and hat. And I was surrounded by a lot of handmade things as well as lots of patterns. I love patterns. So um, I think a lot of that just comes from growing up with it and there's something really comforting to me about it and Mm -hmm. maybe that's wise because it reminds me of like a feeling of home um and it's interesting that you know turkey is such a lost place yet without it i don't think i would be making my art about my faith um and that something really really rich can come out of something that's really dark. Do you see those shapes and then you paint them or do they just kind of come out? I think most of the time I see them. And um, Do you see them when you're just looking around a room? Yes. 
Um, so you, when you entered this studio, you had never been in here before. Mm. Did you abstract out the shapes that you see in this room? Or is this more subconscious than I... that? No, I'm honestly thinking how crazy are people going to think I am? Um, it's a, a, Most of the time it's with faces. I okay. see shapes on people's faces. Okay. Um, I've had two visions mm-hmm. with um, with two people that I see as teachers. Um, okay. One is actually Dr. Pedelford. I don't know how he would feel about this because I haven't told him. And then one is a professor here that I really look up to. And their face, um, when I saw them, their face turned white. And they had little red crosses, two red crosses underneath their eyes, like on their cheeks. Um, and so sometimes I will, I will receive these um, really strong images, but never scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just how, for some reason, it's just how I see the world. Yeah. And I don't try to think that way. I don't. You know, I'm not thinking, like, how am I going to... Like, I didn't walk in here thinking, oh, how am I going to see the room? It just happens. And this shape is the most interesting to me. There's, like, a diamond shape on the wall with lots of lines. Composed of the uh, the sound pads. <laughs> um, for those listening in. So... So I think a lot of times the images are given to me before I can paint them. Um, And a lot of times it's either um, on the front of a house or on someone's face that I receive um, the images. And then that shows up in my work a lot. I mean, I almost exclusively make slash paint houses Mm -hmm. or people yeah um or angels um so and then I've also been thinking about the similarities between those why are architecture and angels intertwined in my mind um because I can be painting a scene of houses and then I'll turn one into an angel but in my mind they'll be the same thing and so I wrote down this list of like the similarities between a house and an angel Hmm. and how do those two things function? And the biggest thing is safety. Um, Hopefully the house would provide a sense of, you know, security and safety within the form. And then the angel is more of like a spiritual manifestation of what a home physically is. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if you want to cut that out completely. You can, um, I know that, um, Mr. Burke receives visions and he was the first artist I talked to about it because I thought, like, I kind of doubted it and I thought this doesn't mean anything. Um, but I think, again, like our culture is so removed yeah. from some of those like spiritual, um, callings or, voices um yeah because they're not always immediate it and like it can take time to 
to learn what to do with those things. And sometimes they require community in order to help process. Right. You need someone else to tell you what's going on. Yeah, and then you're like, do I even want to tell anyone? Because even like I'm saying, like, I don't know what people think about what I'm saying right now. And um, I had this beautiful vision, though, of uh, Mr. Burke that I ended up making a little maquette for a sculpture, but I don't want to make it for a class. It's just for me, and it's in my house. But he was talking to me about his art, and I saw he, he started shaking his head from side to side. And I saw these beautiful, and I almost heard them too, marbles um, hanging from his, so like under his eyelids, there were these bags. And I know that's probably unattractive for most people, but I love like lines on people's faces. So I was looking at the bags and he had three like strings hanging from them and then marbles at the end of each one. And when he was turning his head from side to side, these marbles were just clinking together. And who knows? No, I shouldn't start the sentence off with that. Um, I don't always know the immediate, you know, why I would have that kind of vision. But I don't think that's a good enough reason to question why you would have them. I'm sure that lots of other people probably have visions and just don't talk about them. Um, And then everyone that does is convinced that they're crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Because because we do want to talk about them. Yeah. Um, And so recently, as I've been having those, like, um, those really strong visual images that I haven't really known what to do with, the more people I tell, I've had more of them. Mm -hmm. And let's see, the night after I told Mr. Burke... Um, who I really respect, and I was afraid to tell him, I woke up at 2.31 and a.m., and I, it was the weirdest thing. Like, every time I closed my eyes, I saw the same image, and it was this triangle. It was after Bible study at your house, and we talked about the Ten Commandments. Hmm. It was this red triangle with ten red candles inside of it, within the triangle. And I kept trying to go back to sleep. I was like, literally, I probably was awake for an hour. And I'm just, for some reason, like, so stubborn. Like, I was like, I'm not going to get out of bed, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, this could be another vision. This could be another, or maybe, I don't know if vision is, like, a scary word. Maybe if, like, image is Um, if image is a maybe less scary word for people to hear or think about for themselves, you know, I received an image that I thought I just need to get a piece of paper. I need to draw it out so that when I wake up, it's there and I have it recorded. And so, you know, I drew the little triangle with the tin candles and, um, and then I went, I went back to sleep after that, just like that. And, um, and so I think, I don't know if that's an artist thing or if that's just a human thing, because I feel like I have met people that receive 
very strong visual images when they pray. Um, and they're not necessarily artists. Um, but God can speak to people in different ways. And that's another thing you experience overseas is a lot of the spiritual like side of, you know, people have dreams and visions and prophecies and, and, and that's just normal life. Right. And yeah. no one questioned those overseas. You know, I don't think I would be afraid to tell anyone over there what I had seen because they would all probably throw a party for me and be like, wow, we're so <laughs> like, we, she received a vision. We're so excited. They love that mm. and they rejoice in that. And, and here it's almost like we're just so skeptical but but even me too. Yeah. You know, when we were that the Mystic Ladder retreat that our church has been going through, um, who did we read last? Teresa? Yeah. Teresa of Avila. Of Avila. Even some of the stuff she was writing, I'm like, I don't think I understand this the first time I read it or hear it. But then I also didn't understand the gospel the first time. I, I read it or heard of it. And so it's really easy to be skeptical the first time. Um, and then as God just continues working in your life, you realize that he just speaks differently to different people. Um, and it's not a bad thing <laughs> or scary. This is, my, this is my bone to pick with the psychedelic community. Okay. Is... There is a whole percentage of our population of people like you mm. who have very regular, I would say, psychedelic-like experiences, mm. and we're not taking care of those people. The, what do you mean we're not taking care of them? We, well, you feel uncomfortable oh. sharing about these things. Oh, yes. And we are, we're, we're starved for this way of seeing the world. Mm. And so we're looking for the psychedelic experiences, but the people are right next to us who can give us these things. And right. like, it's you, it's my wife, Angela, mm -hmm. like what we're looking for in these drugs we can find in our community. We just have to, oh, we just have to be willing to have these conversations with people. And so, right. yeah, we shouldn't be, if we can't even take care of the people in our community who are already having these experiences, mm. we shouldn't be playing with that kind of stuff. Right. Um, right. It's not that, it's not that the psychedelic experiences are not real. Right. It's that people around us are already having them and, mm. uh, we're not taking care of those people. So. Right. Well, that is, oh, another interesting thought because when I spent a summer in the Smoky Mountains, for an art internship, I was the only believer. Um, but I knew two other um, artists that I was fairly close to that received very strong visual images. Yeah. And they weren't always spiritual. Um, one of them did have what he would call a spiritual walk, um, not with Christ. Um, and then I'm not sure. I didn't have as many conversations with the girl but I wonder if some people are just gifted, not gifted, 
that some people interpret the world that way. And, and, you know, I really believe that God works through non-believers, whether they want to be worked through or not. He's using them and he's, he will be glorified in the end. Um, ultimately, we want them to become Christians. Um, but I think that summer experience really taught me that God was using them and he was using their art in a way that they were not even aware of mm-hmm. um, because they could receive certain images that were so strong, it was almost like they were spiritual mm-hmm. to them. Um, but I'm not saying that every image we receive is a spiritual one because that could be really dangerous um, if you receive scary images or something like that. Could you talk more about the, and I don't, this is kind of, this is really open-ended. I'm not even sure where I want this to go, but could you talk more about angels? Um, Mm -hmm. Have you, I mean, house, house is a pretty concrete thing. We've all been in houses. Right. Uh, People, that's pretty concrete. We all see people. We all Uh know what people are. Have you had, and you don't have to go into details, if if you don't if this is too personal but have you had personal interactions with what you would say are angels just two okay um two that i can think of that only i experienced um one was when i was 7 or 8 and uh It was a really scary day for my family. Um, My younger sister was lost, and we had just moved to Turkey. And so we just thought, she's gone. Like, we don't know what happened to her. So my mom was out looking for her all day. They couldn't find her. And I was really scared. You know, they were trying to protect us and say, everything's fine, everything's fine. But I was like, Mm -hmm. I was really worried as a kid. And... I went out to my balcony, and I remember just crying and crying and crying. And we lived on the third floor, and I was holding onto the handrail, and I was just so... I don't even remember saying any words. I just didn't know what to do. And I was looking out at this village um, that we lived across. I mean, these really special houses, but... Um, but sad too. Um, they were made out of cardboard, you know, cloth, like basically like tent, tent like structures, um, anything that people could find, um, which is why I like dumpster diving. But anyways, (laughs) um, that's what our village looked like. It was very, you know, just special. And so I was looking out at our village and I was crying and I'm, I just remember saying her name and just, you know, as as a prayer almost. And I saw like above our village just this white almost like white orbs that were floating across the sky. And then this just one angel just fly by. Um it was completely white, 
Like, everything was white. All the houses turned white. And I just remember one angel just slowly passing. And then the orbs kind of circled around her, and she disappeared. And it's interesting because as a kid, I never doubted if that happened. Like, I remember thinking, oh, I just saw an angel. I didn't even tell my parents. I just thought it was so normal. And which is also why, like, the way kids think is they don't doubt that those things happen. They know that there's a God unless someone tells them otherwise. Um, Almost every kid I've worked with and know knows that there's a God. Um, And... So I remember, you know, I didn't tell my parents, and then we ended up finding my sister later, and she was safe. Um, And then the other time, I was asked to sing for church, and I was very nervous um, because I don't like singing in front of a lot of crowds. And I think I was maybe 10 or 11. My sister and I were singing the same sister. Interesting that both of those experiences were with her. Anyways... Um, and I remember praying beforehand, just really that I wouldn't throw up or that I wouldn't, um, do anything drastic out of nervousness. Drastic. And so Annie sang her solo. And then when I got to my part, I began singing and I heard all these voices singing with me and I didn't feel afraid. And I was looking out in the audience like, who? And I'm sure if there was a video of it, you would be able to see me singing, like looking like, who is that? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe once I realized no one else was singing and I wasn't afraid, it was like I just knew in my mind, like, they're singing with me. And and again, like my, my dad was very... He always told us that there were angels watching us, Um, not in a scary way or a creepy way, but in a protective way. And especially in our church, you know, we would enter and and he would just ask us to be aware that there were angels and um, inside and outside the building. And if we were ever afraid, he would, you know, he would say, well, there are angels with us because the Bible talks about angels. Um, It even talks about like, angels being assigned regions. And I don't know if that's countries or cities um, or people. You know, I don't know if their regions are like the family Um, because the Bible doesn't go into it too much. Um, It's a bit mysterious. But we know that angels are like assigned places. And I think... As a kid, just being able to experience and see the angels, I've just since then never really doubted that they worked um, in our everyday lives. And um, I'm not sure if you had another question with, have you seen an angel? Yeah, but every every uh, <laughs> interaction has always been uh, negative, scary. Really? I know that I haven't had pleasant experiences like you've had. Okay. Yeah. 
I would much rather have the experiences you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, not many. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that I live a half in, in the, uh, this other dimension like you and other people I know do. Um, but I've had enough experiences to, to be open to this sort of thing. Right. Right. And we talked about it in that group Bible study with Revelation, how some people, I, I don't remember if you said it, maybe you did, because it was very, I never thought of it that way, but that some people, you know, Christians and non-Christians have a full view almost of like the world now, and they're gifted with the sight of the present. Mm-hmm. And, and then other Christians, and perhaps non-Christians, are gifted with the ability to, you know, live part in this world mm-hmm. and, then, and then part outside of it. And it does sometimes feel like a blessing and a curse um, because I, I mean, I have been really emotional before and have told Mason, I just want to be like everyone else. Because I, I felt so alone and misunderstood um, or thought of as, well, I guess some people would say crazy, but then others, um, I think, tend to, if you have those experiences, treat you more like a child. And I think in some ways being childlike is good because I do talk a lot about kids, but when someone treats you like a child, that's a different experience. Yeah. And it can feel very belittling um, when you want someone to take you seriously with those kinds of experiences. Um, and so I think it's very important that maybe as a culture or as a church, we become more aware of how to interact with those kinds of stories or experiences when someone comes to them. Um, with that kind of information, um, because I've even shared things with fellow believers and felt very discouraged afterwards Hmm. um, and felt like there's no room for visions or, um, or I guess a personal, like a personal image from God. Um, But I really have my parents to thank because I don't think they've ever doubted it. Um, And I had this very interesting experience that I'm not sure if you'll keep in here. But there was this lady who was about like 70 when I saw her last. And she was my Sunday school teacher before we moved to Turkey. So maybe from like zero to five. And... She saw me recently. I I started college, um, so maybe it was a year or two ago. And she chased me down. We went back to our home church, and she just chased me down. She's like, "I have I have to tell you something," and I didn't know when I would see you again. And I was like, "What is it?" Um, and she said, "Your eyes were always different." in that Sunday school class. Like, and I was like, well, I was two. Like, you know, I was like, well, she's just, she's just saying that. 
Like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, I don't even remember what I said. I think I said thank you or something. And, and she said, no, really. Your eyes are different. And, and God, what did she say? She said, your eyes are different. And God's going to use that. And I don't know if she knew I was going to be an artist or like what kind of message she had received. Um, but she was a very respected lady at our church. Um, and she had worked with kids, you know, the whole time she was there for like 20 or 30 years. And she said that I had different eyes. And, and so after that, maybe, because that was the first time someone had told me, you know, maybe you should pay more attention to this. And, and then I was like, maybe I am an artist. Maybe there's something that, maybe there's something that other people can see and not because they're better and not because they're more holy or, or anything like that, because I'm not, I feel the least <laughs> like that. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, and for whatever reason, your wife um, sees what she sees. Um, we do. And, and I'm not sure what to make of that. I'm all, I feel like I'm still a little bit hesitant to tell people that I see, you know, that I, I can see different things because I never want people to feel uncomfortable or like I can read their mind or something. I think a lot of people are like, can you read my mind? And I'm like, no, um, I'm not God. And, and, but again, like people just don't know what, what to make of it. Um, and, but I think art has been almost one of the most natural ways to process seeing those things. Um, because when you can't tell people, you have limited options. And so as a high schooler, I would, you know, I would just lock myself in my room and, and start painting. Mm -hmm. And I would, I was very secretive, very secretive at the beginning about my work. Um, because also I didn't know I wanted to be an artist. I was wanting to be an archeologist at the time, um, and go on digs and, and things like that. And so I didn't even consider it as a career. I just thought this seems to be my secret and it's, it's helping me think about these things that are happening without having to risk being hurt and, um, you know, and having people say certain things about me. Um, and so it's interesting just in like four or five years since high school where I am now, um, the fact that I can even show someone my work or like have it in the hallway and people like you see it and me not just like freak out that someone saw something I did, I really think is, is growth hmm. <laughs> and, and maturity. And well, it's um, also a safe avenue for the people that you want to share with also, because right. if you're looking at a painting, you're kind of expecting to see things differently. Hmm. Like you're, you're expecting to see through someone else's perspective with mm -hmm. a painting. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot, maybe it might feel safer 
than yeah. coming up to someone and saying like, guess what? Right. Yeah. That's true. It's funny because in my head, once I started having more and more images coming to my head, I made a list of people that I thought I could tell. Wow. Because I really felt so torn about it. Mm -hmm. And your wife was one of those people. Yeah. Angela, I was like, I know she's not going to, I know that she's going to believe me. Yeah. Um, but it was like, I felt very alone and, um, and like maybe something was, was wrong with me or that I was making something up, um, that I was just living in this like dream world and, and that that was childish of me and I needed to, you know, focus on what was here, um, but the reality is, like, those things are here. We just can't see them the same yeah. way. Um, or maybe not everyone can see them the same way. Um, so, yeah. This has been great. Oh. I like talking about it. I really appreciate your bravery. Thanks. Would you be willing to come back for a round two? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Maybe I, we can get a third person in here also. That might be interesting. I don't know who. Maybe another artist. Because like I feel like we're not finished yet. I feel like there's more here. Right. Well, it's interesting that... And I feel like Angela and I are very similar. And then you and Mason are very similar. Hmm. I feel like I'm... I feel like I'm stuck in between a lot of different things. Yeah. I feel like an imposter on a lot of fronts. Because I resonate... Huh with the things that you're talking about. Okay. But I'm also not fully there either. I, I feel like I'm very much in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you, you referenced the Myers-Briggs personality. Most of, okay. the, most of the things on that spectrum, I'm kind of right in the middle. Really? Yeah. So. Because I'm just thinking about, like, Mason, how he's usually responded to my, you know, yeah. when I've talked about it. He's never like thought it wasn't true. Sure. You know, he's always believed me, but there is still a part of him where he's like, I do not see the world this way. Yeah. And, but it doesn't lead him to doubt. It no. kind of leads him to like wonder, I guess. And, and an openness. Um, and the same with me, like he sees the world a different way than yeah, I do. It works the other way around also. Yeah. And so I wonder if we could have a mix of people on here that maybe do see the world that way, you know, or both ways. Yeah, yeah. And, like, how they can, because, like, if we had a whole episode about visions <laughs> and. Well, this is fun because I didn't intend to talk about this with you. But oh, it's, that would be awesome. It's, it's fun that we've gone in this direction. So, yeah, I, I don't think we're done here. I think we should have a, yeah. a round two. Because angels and visions are, like, I guess pretty tied be continued. <laughs> All right, signing out.